and welcome to Expulsion at 50, a podcast series created to commemorate the 50-year anniversary of the expulsion of Asians from Uganda. My name is Dola Vasani. Over the past 12 months, I have spoken to different contributors around the world. I've been totally overwhelmed by the generosity of the interviewees and the richness of content that has been shared. It has also become increasingly important to give the listener the space and platform to share what the podcast has meant to them. Because without the listener, there is no podcast. So it is in that spirit I invited Sudeshan Reddy, a South African Indian and a member of my chosen family, to share his thoughts, perspectives and suggestions with us. To put it very simply, Uganda has, for some perhaps more conservative elements in our community, been a cautionary tale of what could happen, of the position of Indians in Africa. Even though, as many of us who consider ourselves progressive have argued, the East African Indian community is very, very different to the South African Indian community, and it's dangerous to tar everybody with the same brush and assume the histories are the same because the histories and the present are totally different. But having said that, there is still a sense of fear and growing up in this country, born pre-apartheid in the 70s and growing up in the 80s and 90s, there are certain events that shape the South African Indian experience in this country. Uh, negative events. The one was the 1949 riots in Durban. Two was the 1985 Inanda riots, also north of Durban. And the third, lingering in the background, was Uganda in 1972. Because what it said was that you may think you belong here, but actually, Uganda proves you don't. But an intellectual response was that Unlike in Uganda, where there was still the likelihood of the possibility of Britain taking you in or you being part of a commonwealth or holding a British passport, there was nothing like that here. And unlike the East African community, the community here were completely cut off from India as the first country to apply sanctions in 1947. No air links, no diplomatic links, limited visitation rights, few family connections, outside of a small section of the community. In a sense, you could argue our situation is very different. And others would argue that it made you more vulnerable because there was no alternative. Ugandan Indians had places to go to even under terribly difficult circumstances. South African Indians didn't. This was just the thoughts that went through people's minds. I can speculate to an extent because I was born three years after the expulsion. So it's, I'm speaking about what I've grown up listening to over the years. And Idi Amin was certainly a figure of huge hostility and dread in the community here among South African Indians as embodying the worst of a chauvinistic and dangerous African nationalism. The counter view was that 
South Africa's liberation struggle was very different, uh, which Indians were actively involved in. We had a South African nationalism, which was different to an exclusionary one, that the community here identified largely with the masses in this country, and that it's inconceivable that anything like Uganda could happen. I think conservative elements will always have a phobia about these issues, no matter what happens. I think the facts are more sobering, which is that post-1994, South African Indians are very much part of the community of South Africans. That a population of over a million, it's far larger than any community in East Africa. It's also now third or fourth generation, fifth generation in some cases. It's deeply entrenched. And while there are sometimes feelings that there's a sense of hostility on both sides, the thought of a mass expulsion, I think, 50 years later, is highly unlikely. I think even the biggest conspiracy theorists would perhaps say that's a little far-fetched in this context. We know the majority of Indians were brought to South Africa by the British as indentured laborers from 1860 onwards. So what was their legal status? Well, until the 1940s, from what I've understood in my honours thesis, which I wrote a little about this, South African Indians were not considered South African citizens. They were there temporarily, even though they had at that point been in the country for eight years, and that they were all eventually going to go back and were encouraged to go back. But until the 40s, you were very much a foreigner. But since then, I think there is a sense that this is our country and that you can hold multiple identities. And that, I think, has been fostered post-1994 as well. And I think as the country has opened up to India and we've all had the opportunity to visit, if anything, and I think I would say 90% of South African Indians will tell you they've come back much more aware of their national identity as opposed to their cultural identity than never before. We're also living in a world where you don't have to be just one. You can belong to different groups where that notion of a globalized world is a reality. And that's more so in this country where Indian, Indian diasporas are global now and influential and all over they identify as an Indian cultural diaspora, but very much American, Canadian, Scottish, Australian, New Zealander, etc. And so that's also led to a sense that we are South African Indian, comfortable in who we are, speaking for myself and I would say like-minded people, comfortable in who we are and who, what we identify as and what has shaped us, which is this country. One of the realities of the Asians in Uganda and East Africa broadly was their presence and visible dominance in the economy, but less so in terms of political participation. How has it been in South Africa? The oldest political movement in this country was the Natal Indian Congress, formed in 1893, predating the ANC, which was formed in 1912. It was very much focusing on Indian interests, and some would say business mercantile Indian interests, not the majority who were working class. But it was a political movement that was advocating uh, a political cause. So the involvement of Indians has been from the start. My great-grandfather was one of the supporters of the NIC and a big donor to the Italian Congress. He met Gandhi in the 1920s when he was here. And there was a group of people in this country who were very politicized. And even if you were not politically active, you supported the movement financially and in other ways. So focusing on the podcast, Sudeshan, what would you say have been 
your main takeaways? To tell human stories is important in any context. It doesn't matter what the situation. Um, otherwise, it remains dry historical happenings. When you put a human face to a story, it's how normal everybody's lives were. People went to school, grew up in extended families, traveled around the region. It was a normal existence. It's a story you hear when you speak to survivors of the Rwanda genocide, when you speak to Bosnians before the Balkan War, when you speak to people who have been forced to migrate and leave their places. And even at the height of apartheid, you lived a fairly normal life in an abnormal circumstance. It made it very human and identifiable. And that I particularly enjoyed hearing. The other part that has interested me listening to these podcasts, and I've said this to you before, is the noticeable lack of anger or bitterness, which has struck me. And it struck me when I've been speaking to you from the start and others. There are no effigies being burnt of Amin. There was not that I was aware of big protests against him living in comfort in Saudi Arabia. I've never sensed that absolute rage about what happened. Obviously, sadness. But that's interesting as well. Sense I get, though, is that this was a community that ne didn't necessarily blame anybody overtly, but kind of made the best of a difficult situation, um, which is a very simplistic way of looking at it. But my impression was they, at least unlike other communities, had skills, many of them, and kind of got on with it. But that's also unfair to other communities when one says that. So you've got to be careful in how you phrase it. I just got a sense that they, as you just said, now were appreciative of the support they were given. And despite it being so completely difficult, did, you know, make a go of it. I do think having an education helped and being able to speak English must have made a difference. And what are your suggestions for future episodes? What I would like to hear more about in the future podcast, and I, 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 because this makes me curious as um, somebody who's lived in this country with all its issues, a little more introspection maybe around why this happened. To understand what triggered it, what different, and not to justify it, but what may have triggered it. And could it happen again? And if it does happen again, how do you mitigate it? Does the behavior of communities now set the stage for this to happen again in a lot of places, not just Uganda. So looking back 50 years, could it have been avoided? Some could say those arguments are not helpful now. I disagree. I think it would be very good to have a frank assessment of could we have prevented it? And maybe we couldn't because we were dealing with somebody who was obviously mentally unstable. But for Amin to do what he did, a whole system functions. And that's what we forget when we personify evil or incompetence, whether it's Jacob Zuma or Donald Trump. It's all personified as one person. And that's so convenient. Just one person did it and changed our lives. But a system did it and enablers did it and enforcers did it. And that's how it worked here as well. And collaborators did it. So that would be interesting. What I also find interesting is the silence of so many. I mean on India's diplomatic stance over that period. And it's very hard to get it. I mean, I know India was active in the non-aligned movement. Under Indira Gandhi, there was a very Africanist tilt. But these were an ethnically Indian population that was being expelled. And it's interesting. I couldn't find much on it. In paradise,
If you are a listener of my podcast and would like to share your perspectives, please get in touch. The email address is expulsion50 at gmail.com or on Twitter at expulsion50. Thank you for listening and stay safe.